Well, we're turning this evening to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. It's good to see you all gathered this evening, and we welcome you heartily. Also, those online who join with us, and we pray that the Lord will be near to us as we meet in the house of the Lord for this time around the world. So Jeremiah chapter 50, um, we'll read the first eight verses of the chapter. The word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard, publish and conceal not, say, Babylon is taken, Baal is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away in the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All that found them have devoured them, and their adversary said, We offend not, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Remo uh, remove out of the midst of Babylon, and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as the he-goats before the flocks." And we'll end there, as I said, and we know the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, could we just have a word of prayer again, and let's commit our time to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father and our Eternal God, we bow before Thee in the name of Thy Son. We continue in Thy presence. We thank Thee for this another time set aside wherein we may gather in Thy house and in Thy presence. O Lord, we draw near to Thee upon redemption ground. We come through the merits of our blessed Redeemer. We pray that as we consider the word that Thou hast given for this time, that we will know the help of the Spirit. We pray for His gracious influence. We pray for His leading, His direction. We pray, Lord, that Thy word will come to us with freshness, with that speaking voice that we want to hear, that will give us thoughts and will give us material in prayer that as we gather before Thee later for this season of prayer, we will be able to lay hold upon our God on the very basis of what we have seen tonight. And so, Lord, give help by the Spirit now. Make this a profitable time. Shut out the world with all its noise and clamor. Shut out the enemy, the adversary. O Lord, cover us beneath the shadow of Thy wing. Cleanse me in Jesus' blood, fill me, Lord, with thy Spirit. Come down upon every one of us tonight 
and meet with us, we pray. We ask this for the Savior's sake and for the Savior's glory. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to focus your minds tonight upon verses 4 and 5 of this passage. I've been reading in Jeremiah and just a day or so ago, these verses really got a hold of my mind and I was greatly blessed as I looked at them and thought about them. And we trust the Lord will bless them to your hearts, verses 4 and 5. Now, Jeremiah not only foretold the captivity of Babylon, but he also foretold the end of it. And through the destruction of Babylon, the Lord's people were again set free. That is really what you have in the first three verses of this chapter, the destruction of Babylon and thereby the release of the captives in those days so long ago. That destruction came at the hands of the Medes. They're actually mentioned in the next chapter. We'll not turn to it for time's sake, but in chapter 51 and verse 11, you read really of a parallel to what we have here, and you'll read there of the Medes, that great empire that overthrew the Babylonians and succeeded them as the world power in that day so long ago. The significant outcome of the overthrow of Babylon and the release of the captives was that the Lord's people being released were enabled to return to their own land. And that is the point that is emphasized in verses 4 and 5. These verses are dealing with the fact that those who were released then went back to their own land. That's the context, that's the setting. In a very real way, the the return of the captives in those times so long ago had a spiritual emphasis to it, a spiritual ethos within it. They returned to Jerusalem. They were there to re-erect the temple. We've been covering all these matters in our study in Ezra. They were there to re-establish the sacred worship of God. They were there to prepare the platform for the coming of the Messiah, the personal appearance of the Messiah in His incarnation as the Christ of God. And on this basis of this prophecy in verses 4 and 5, we therefore may interpret it as well to teach the great gospel truth of the Lord bringing sinners out of this fallen world. Babylon represents the world. It was a literal place, of course, but it represents the world. And the coming of the captives out of Babylon in those times was certainly a presentation of that great work that the Lord does when He intervenes in people's lives. He he changes their whole direction. He begins to work in their hearts and He saves them and He brings them out of that fallen world. That is why I want to employ these verses this evening. They provide for us a vivid a reminder of God at work in this world, of God at work among sinners, bringing them out of the captivity that they're in in a fallen world. And I trust that as we look at the verses in that way, it will be of blessing to your hearts. There are three ways in which I want us to consider these two verses on that basis of God bringing sinners out of a fallen world. Is now what we want? Is now what we're praying for? and preaching for and laboring for to see sinners brought out of a fallen world. And there are three views of them here as we look at these two verses. Number one, they come out weeping. 
They come out weeping. I just take the words there in verse number 4. It says, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. Going and weeping. And so we read here that the children of Israel and the children of Judah together, first of all, notice what it says there, they shall come. Those words really gripped my mind as I thought about them. And especially as we think about how God deals with people and brings them out of the world. And when we consider those two words, that verb shall come, uh, we think of what the Lord says in other places in Scripture because that kind of language is a mark of grace. When people are being brought out of the world, they shall come. They shall turn away from their captivity. They will forsake their Babylon and their serfdom and their slavery, and they shall come. And I remind you what it says in John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Very same verb, only in the Greek language. Here, this would be Hebrew in the original language. But the, the translation is remarkable. He, all that the Father giveth me, or to me, shall come to me. And so there's a people given to Christ in the counsel of the Father from all eternity, and we're being told in the Word of God there in John 6, 37, that they shall come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming is a mark of having been chosen and given to Christ from all eternity. You know, people uh, sometimes in their when they go through doubts and fears and lack of assurance, they might ask the question, how do I know I am one of God's people? How do I know I'm one of the elect? And this is how you know. The elect of God shall come. That's what the Bible says. And this is what's in view right here as we take these verses in the manner I'm considering them tonight. And so coming is a mark of grace. It's a mark of having been given to Christ. And therefore, we pray for sinners to come. And furthermore, we watch for sinners to come out of fallen humanity, coming to Jesus Christ, out of their sin, out of their bondage, out of their darkness, whatever they're in, and approaching the Savior. And the point here that we're seeing is they come out weeping. And that's a very important word as well. Come, it says here, they shall come and they will be marked by this going and weeping. Coming out of the Babylon of this sinful world, coming to Christ, and it says here, actually weeping as they do. What is the thought there? The Lord brings people out of the world by first of all breaking them and giving them a contrite heart, so that when they leave the world, they are sorry they ever were in it. Haven't you prayed that way? Lord, I wish I had been saved long before I actually was saved. And you mourn and you lament over the time you spent in Babylon, over the time that you spent in the world, wasting your time and wasting your energy and wasting your all of, your, all of the qualities God gave you, wasting it all. And when you're brought out of Babylon and you come to Christ, you find in your heart there's a true mourning over all that has been misspent and frivolously given away to the world and the flesh and the devil. Turn, please, to Matthew 5, because what we're looking at here 
about the fact that people who are saved, they come out of the world, come out of Babylon, out of their captivity, and they come out weeping. What we're seeing here is the biblical pattern. I want you to see this in Matthew 5. In that passage where the Lord uh, speaks and we have what are called the Beatitudes, and we read in verse number 3 where the Beatitudes begin, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any great detail because of time, but the Lord here in verses 3 to 6 is actually setting out the divine program for the conversion of the sinner. That's what the Beatitudes at first here are all about. They are setting out God's program for the salvation of souls. What actually happens? And so look with me at what happens. First of all, they are shown their own poverty of soul. That is, they have nothing to give God. They have nothing to present to the Lord. They are poor, and they suddenly feel it, and they suddenly sense it. And so that's what that first beatitude is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Man in his sin has nothing to offer God, and yet God saves him nonetheless. The second thing is, they mourn over their sin. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn. You see, once a man sees that he is nothing and has nothing, nothing to offer God in himself, he's bereft of all righteousness, all merit, all value of any spiritual kind, all because of sin, he starts to mourn over that. That's what the mourning is in verse 4. I know that these words are used at funerals. But let me tell you something, they have nothing to do with funerals. This is, the, this is the program of God as He breaks sinners down and He melts their hearts and He shows them their poverty of soul and then they start to mourn over that. And then verse number 5, blessed are the meek. What is meekness? It is humility. So this is the third step. They see their poverty of soul, they start to mourn over the sin that caused all this and then they are humbled before God. And then verse number 6, what happens then? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And there you have the next step in the salvation of a sinner. He begins to hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ. Because in the original text it reads, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for the righteousness. And that's Christ. Christ is our righteousness. And you see, that makes up for the poverty of soul that we're in naturally and because of our sin. And so we say our poverty of soul, we mourn over that and we are humble before God. And what we then realize is, what I need is Jesus Christ. But you see, the mourning is also here as it is back there in Jeremiah chapter 50. And so the details in Matthew 5 add up uh, to present the truth of how the Lord brings sinners out of this world. He breaks them. He melts their hearts. He gives them a sight of their sin. He convicts them of that sin. They're penitent over that sin. They mourn over that state and they flee to Jesus Christ who is the only one who can save them and become their righteousness that they will have all of the needs of their hearts fully met. And you see, all of that, turning back here to Jeremiah 50, where it says they shall uh, going and weeping, all of that is caused by the Spirit of God. 
The Holy Spirit woos. The Holy Spirit humbles. The Holy Spirit enlightens. The Holy Spirit draws. The Holy Spirit produces true godly sorrow, gospel sorrow, and weeping over sin. Crying out to God for mercy. Notice what it says there. Just taking the reference there to the weeping, it says, going and weeping. In other words, what you will note there is that they're coming out of Babylon, they're moving away from their captivity, and as they are going out, this brokenness comes over them, this mourning over sin descends upon them. And you know, it doesn't stop short of Jesus Christ. Notice how it goes on to say this. It says, they shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. Listen to this, brethren and sisters. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. What is seeking the Lord their God? That's the broken-hearted sinner coming to Christ. That's what that means. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, well, the gospel's not in here. And how wrong we are. That is marvelous gospel language. They're broken, they're weeping, they're going, they're leaving the world behind, they're leaving Babylon behind, but they are going to seek the Lord their God. The prodigal son, think about him for a moment, because he illustrates this. You know what he first of all said, or thereabouts, he said, I perish with hunger. But you know, that was not enough. He could have kept on saying, I perish with hunger, I perish with hunger, I perish with hunger. But that would never have brought him home. What did he say next? I will arise and go to my Father. You see, conviction is important. It is essential. Indeed, it's indispensable. But conviction leads the sinner to go and seek the Lord their God. And so here is one view of how God brings people out of the world. They come out weeping. But then secondly, they come out inquiring. Let's look at verse number 5. It says, They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. They shall ask their way to Zion with their faces thitherward. And the reference again is taken tonight as we are doing to sinners as they are being drawn away from the world, uh, from their sinful, fallen, slavish state, and they begin to make inquiry about the things of God. They start to ask questions. They show an interest. It wasn't there before. They had no thought about the Lord. And then suddenly the whole scene begins to change, and, and these people whom God is bringing out of the world, as I say, they begin to inquire. They begin to ask questions. And what was previously neglected is now the subject of their thoughts and their heart's desires and their inquiries. You know, we have seen this over and over again. People who had absolutely no interest in the things of God, and of course that is true of all unsaved people. I mean any real interest, any genuine interest, anything that's lasting and eternal, they never had it. And then suddenly... Well, the first thing is God brings them out by breaking them. They begin to mourn, weep over their sin. And then they start to ask questions. They begin to inquire. You know, it used to be there was the practice of, of having what was called the inquiry room. 
And some people might have frowned on that. But let me tell you something. That was a good title. That was a room for people to go to in their, in their agony of soul and talk with the minister or whatever uh, the case might have been and, and ask questions and make known their need and, and, and come to an understanding of the things of God. And so they come out inquiring. Let me tell you, any man, any woman, any young person whom the Lord brings out of the world is going to be inquiring, seeking for help and counsel and understanding. Notice what happens here. They look for direction. Here's what it says. They shall ask the way to Zion. They shall ask the way to Zion. Do you not hear in that, that matter of their inquiry a re-echoing or a, even a foreshadowing of what happened at Pentecost? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Or the jailer at Philippi, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, that does happen, brethren and sisters. And that's why it is proper and right to counsel people. That's why every Sunday night, uh, the preacher and the pope, if he's worth his salt at all, he will say to the congregation, if there's anybody here or more than one here tonight and you're anxious about your soul, come and speak with me. Let's sit down and talk about these things. You know, there are men who will, who will reject that. They will actually mock that. But you shouldn't ask people to go to the minister's room or the inquiry room, whatever you want to call it. That's putting pressure on. No, my friend, it's not. That is doing what the Bible teaches. Because here we've been shown that sinners who are awakened and broken and weeping over their sin, they're looking for direction. You see, there you have the thought of teachability. And that's an evidence of grace. They want to be taught. They want to be shown what the way to God is. That's what the jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? And I've often put it this way in preaching in that text. He was not asking, what is the selection of works that I should do in order to be right with God? No, he was saying, what is God's way of salvation? I want to know it. That's what that means. And so his heart immediately was teachable. That's an evidence of grace. What were the first words of, of Paul on the Damascus Road? He was a man with inquiry. Who art thou, Lord? It wasn't that he didn't know who it was that had been dealing with him or did deal with him. He wanted to know more about him. Who art thou, Lord? Because he called him Lord. And the Bible says that no man can call Jesus Christ Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost was there. And Paul's inquiring, or Saul of Tarsus as he still was, and he's teachable, he's pliant, he's been broken. Dramatically, yes, but a broken man, a mourning man, mourning over his sin, he says, who art thou, Lord? And then what was his next question? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And you know, my friend, I long that people might be coming every Sunday, every meeting, asking those questions. That's what we want. Teachability and inquiring heart. And furthermore, not ashamed of needing instruction. 
Whenever they said, or as it says here, they asked the way to Zion, they asked it openly and without any embarrassment. We want to know the way to Zion. They're not only teachable, but they are not ashamed of seeking for that instruction and that help and that guidance. And again, that is God-given wisdom. That is the Lord at work in the human heart. You see, man left himself, thinks he knows it all. He believes that he doesn't need any, he has no questions. He doesn't need any answers, so he never will ask. I was just reading Spurgeon, and Spurgeon had a very interesting comment. And he said this, He shall never know who is not willing to confess that he does not know. Just think about that. He shall never know who is not willing to confess that he does not know. These people are openly, unashamedly saying, we don't know the way to Zion. Tell us about it. And so they have in mind the fact that they're looking for direction. And furthermore, in their minds, they want to reach the right destination. They ask the way to Zion, but as they do, their faces are actually thitherward. It says that in verse 5. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. And when you think about that, the thought is this. They know what the destination is. Exactly Zion. They can name it. They know what the destination is, but they realize there may be many twists and many turns. They're actually thinking about a road that will lead them to Zion that they have never walked before. You see, Zion is the heavenly city, and that is the final destination of the sinner saved by grace. But the sinner whom God is saving or drawing and and working with, he realizes there's so much between now and actually arriving in Zion that I do not know, and I need to know it. And so they have in mind the right destination. They realize we need further light, we need further knowledge. We need more instruction about the road that leads to Zion. And then again, their inquiry is not only asking about a new direction and this matter of the destination, but their inquiry is marked by determination because it says here, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. They inquire with their faces set toward Zion. What do you learn from that? You learn that their inquiry is not a matter of mere curiosity. They're not simply talking about spiritual things glibly. That's the way many people do, even sinners, who will maybe ask some questions, and as you listen to those questions, you realize that there's no real deep interest there. They're not, they're not really inquiring about the matters of God But here are people whose whose inquiry is actually marked by determination. They mean to do God's will. They mean to persevere to the end. They say, what's the way to Zion? They are in dead earnest about what they're inquiring over. This again, therefore, is how the Lord brings people out of the world. He brings them out weeping. He brings them out inquiring. And then thirdly, He brings them out covenanting. Because it says there in verse 5, 
that they set their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. I tell you, brethren and sisters, that is amazing language. Even if you think about the contextual setting of it, these people leaving Babylon, going to Jerusalem, returning after the 70 years, even some of them never were there because they were born in Babylon. But this is what they say, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. And I tell you tonight, men and women, that is gospel language. And that's what's involved when God is drawing people out of the world. They come to him on the basis of the covenant of grace. They may not know anything about the covenant of grace, but that's what's happening. They may never even have heard the term before. And I would guarantee you very few ever have who have been saved at the very time they're saved. What's the covenant of grace? But you see, there is a covenant of grace. And though they may not know the language or the terminology, most who are converted at the first, yet they'll start to think and read and see in the Bible how over and over again God speaks of his covenant. And when he saves people, he's bringing people into that covenant relationship with him and giving to them all the benefits and all the blessings of that covenant. And they become God's covenant people. That's what they're saying here. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. Join themselves to the Lord. He has become their God. They have become his people. And I belong to him. Well, that's conversion, that's salvation. And all of the blessings that are in that covenant become theirs. And notice this part of it. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. And who's the one who will not forget it? It's not the believer. Because our minds are often very forgetful. It's the Lord. The Lord's covenant is perpetual. It will never be forgotten. Doesn't he, doesn't he say in Psalm 89, my covenant will I not break or alter the thing that has gone out of my mouth. Dear Christian, see tonight what happened to you when God saved you. He brought you out weeping. I don't know whether you wept or not the night you were saved or the time you were saved, but the thought is there, the principle is there of godly sorrow over sin. But he did bring you out, having shown you your sin, and you were grieved over your sin, and you realized you were lost. And he brought you out inquiring. You went to talk to somebody. You sought out help. You sought out counsel. You're looking for new direction. You realized Heaven is the goal I need to reach. And you therefore longed and you prayed, Lord, keep me until I reach the glory. And you came out, God brought you out into a covenant. And that covenant circumscribes, it undergirds, it prevails through our whole earthly experience because the Lord says, it's a perpetual covenant that he will never forget.
and you and I. The more we read the Word, the more we seek after the Lord, this should also be our desire. That we don't want to forget any day about God's covenant mercies, God's covenant grace toward us, God's promises. That's really what the covenant's all about. It's an agreement. That's what the word means. It's an agreement between God and His people. It's entirely unilateral. We don't make any bargains with God. God covenants with us unilaterally to make us His people and keep us and bring us home to glory. But we enter into that covenant gladly and we lay hold upon it and we say, Lord, let us join ourselves to You and remain Your people forevermore. Now, what do we do with this tonight? What's this for? It's God's word to you tonight as to how you're to pray. It's the material that you're to bring back to the throne of grace. Not because I said it or tried to explain it to you, but because it's the word that the Lord has given for tonight. Here's how he brings people out of the world. And his program never changes. And so we're not here tonight to pray for some new way, some different measure, some innovation. There is nothing that God's going to do of that nature. He works in that consistent manner down through the ages of time. This is how He draws the lost. This is how He saves His people from their sins. This is how He works in their hearts. And it's my prayer tonight that the Lord will come and stir our hearts with his word, and have us just simply get before God and say, as David said that day when God showed him that he was going to build the temple through Solomon, David said, do as thou hast said. Take it back to the Lord. Lord, in our town, begin to draw people, draw them out of the world with weeping, with inquiry, covenant with thee to be your people. Pray that for your children, for neighbors, friends, whoever, that this will come to pass, even on a wide scale, and that the Lord will move in a marvelous way in our day and time. May God write his word in our hearts and bless it to us. Have you looked at it tonight? Um, make it an encouragement to our hearts.